This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. Welcome to another episode of Business by the Numbers. I'm your host, Hunt Emerest, CPA with Parmels and Associates. So one of the things that I like most about this industry is the openness to share information. There's a network of people that freely share procedures, what works, what doesn't work, and a lot of their numbers and KPIs as well. Now, this can be a double-edged sword, though, because I have a lot of clients comparing themselves to shops that never should be compared to good or bad. That is exactly what I want to talk about this week. Before we get into that, I want to have a quick word from our partners who make business by the numbers possible. Your techs don't want to stand around while you type in details for an RO. With Shopware, an RO gets set up in seconds instead of minutes, and everyone gets on with their day. It's that easy. GetShopware.com. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, Repair Shop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profit by developing a specific plan for each client. Please visit them at RepairShopOfTomorrow.com. One of my biggest frustrations is when I hear gross generalizations being thrown around as rules of thumbs or something that is set in stone for the entire industry. We've all seen it, we've all been a part of it, and even some of us might be guilty of it. Flat rate should be illegal. It shouldn't be allowed to pay someone like that. It's not fair, it's predatory, and any shop owner that does that, you should be ashamed of themselves. On the other side of things, we have a lot of people that say, you cannot be a productive shop if you don't pay flat rate. There's no reason why you should be paying salary hourly. That's not what we're doing. This new generation coming up just doesn't know how to work. At the end of the day, what works for me doesn't work for you. What works for one shop might not work for the guy next door. It all depends on what works for you. I tell people this all the time. You name it, give me the polar opposite. I probably can show you two shops that are doing those well, and I can probably show you two shops that aren't doing those well, right? There's not a whole lot of stuff that you can say, hey, there is no way that you can make this work. I have a lot of shops that are flat rate that have a very good shop culture. They have a very good environment. You know, they're paying people as they're making them more money and everyone's really energized and happy about it. On the same flip side, I get it. Flat rate from an argument perspective, if you really look at it in a vacuum, looks extremely strange and especially to people outside of this industry. And if not implemented correctly, it can be predatory and it can lead to a terrible culture, terrible results and really burn people out. However, on the flip side of it, again, you know, I get the idea of salary hourly, guarantee people's a payroll, making sure that people aren't, you know, incentivized to do more work, but to do quality work. And I have a lot of shops that do that very well. No bonus structure whatsoever, no production bonuses, just truly, hey, you show up and I'm going to pay you for being here. Now, on the opposite side of things, I have a lot of people that have hourly and salary shops and really struggle with production. And for those shops, it's really tricky because it's a hard conversation to have with a technician. Hey, I need you to double your production in order for me to be profitable because the level that you're doing it right now, I can't even pay my bills. But essentially what you're asking that employee to do is you're saying, hey, I want you to do more work, in this case, double the work, but still get paid the same amount of money. And so just like I said, there's, you know, tale of two cities for each of these examples, and you can use this for pretty much anything. And at the end of the day, I will agree. At the very, very core level, shops are all selling the same thing. I always tell people this. At the end of the day, every shop is selling the same thing. You're selling parts and you're selling labor. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you do both of those well, you can pretty much screw up everything else in the shop and you're still going to do pretty well because it is that important. But that is where a lot of the similarities stop. 
I'm going to start with advertising because I hear this question so much. And I think that advertising is one of the hardest things to compare to two shops. The question I get is, how much should I be spending on advertising? Sometimes that question is veiled as, hey, how much is the average shop spending on advertising? But what they're trying to do is trying to get a number for themselves. And ultimately, at the end of this here, you know, I'm going to tell you what my average shop spends, but don't confuse that with what you should be spending. But why? So if you come to me and say, hey, Han, how much should I be spending on advertising? Uh, there's not enough questions I could answer you in quick succession to give you a you know reasonable answer on that. I could throw something on the cuff that's probably pretty close on it, but there's so much that goes into this. I can't answer that question. Some guy on the internet can't answer that question. And even another shop, if you have a friend that owns another shop in town, they cannot answer that question either. Do you have more cars than you know what to do with? Or do you need more cars, right? If you're sitting here and you have no cars in a parking lot and you ask a person that's booked three weeks out, they're probably going to give you completely different advice for good reason, because what they need does not match up to what you have going on. Even in that situation, let's say that you need more cars. How many more do you need? Do you need 10% more cars? Do you need 50% more cars? You're way under capacity and you need to really drive this. Why advertise just to do work that you can't get to? And we've seen this over the last three years, you know, and it's seen some signs of it slowing up, but I have a lot of people that really pulled back on advertising. Hey, I still need to be in the market. I still need to be getting my name out there and I still need to be, you know, getting in contact with my customers and prospective new customers, but we're booked two weeks out. Why am I going to do a huge mailer and spend all of this money just for people to call up and tell me that they can't come in the door? Also, why do a ton of advertising and drive in 50% more cars when you don't need that many more cars? Maybe you can only handle an extra 10%. So again, all of this goes into the consideration. No one is in your exact situation in your exact location, right? Some advertising works in some places. Some advertising is a complete waste of money. And it doesn't necessarily mean just that zip code. What are you doing? What type of customers are you trying to go after? What marquees you're working on? There's so many different things that come into this. Big example here is signs. Every once in a while, I'll see a question or have a client throw out there, hey, looking to get one of those fancy digital signs. You know, they're not cheap. I've had clients spend $50,000, $70,000 for these mini billboard type signs. Now, if your municipality or city that you're in allows this stuff, for a lot of people, it can be a really good investment. Hey, I now kind of own my own billboard in front of my shop. I can have it say whatever I want. And I got 10,000 people that are driving by that every single day. For that shop, it's going to be a really good investment, right? And I have had a lot of shops that have had great success with it. Now, let's say that you're off the beaten path. Let's say that you're back in the back of a business park or just off of a side road. You're not going to have anywhere close to the kind of success that someone on a main through fair is going to have by putting up a sign. Hey, it's great. You put up that sign. It's beautiful. But your shop's at the end of a dead end road. So the only people that are seeing that sign are someone that's already coming to see you. So again, even if you're comparing to another shop, he's the same exact size. He also only works on BMWs. He's got the same amount of technicians, same labor rate, everything on. And he's even the same town as you. You got to be very careful. Where is he? What is his uh, goals here? Maybe he doesn't need anymore. Maybe he's just doing maintenance advertising. There's too many variables here. One of my favorite or least favorite examples that I always like to ask people, right? And a lot of this information, actually all of this information I get from my clients, right? A lot of times my clients can attest to this. Sometimes I ask a question because it actually has to do with the advice that I'm giving. Other times I just want to know, right? I'm curious. I naturally want to kind of learn and I learn a lot of stuff that I can then use to share with other people. And Yelp is 
probably one of those most polarizing companies out there and probably one of the most polarizing advertisers. So the general business model of Yelp is kind of a predatory version of the Yellow Pages, right? It's, you know, you get reviews on there. People can search. People can, you know, get in contact with you. But the difference between Yelp and let's say Google, uh, Google might be a bad example because there's some stuff that can go on there, but the Yellow Pages, right? Hey, if you're in there, you buy an ad or you list your business in there, you're going to be in there right next to some guy that maybe didn't do any sort of advertising. Now, the way that Yelp works is a little bit different, right? It's almost like the mafia. If you get contacted by Yelp and you decide to sign up with Yelp and pay their you know, protection money, or maybe they call it a monthly fee, magically, all of your bad reviews are no longer helpful and all you see is five-star reviews. Now, if you get a call from Yelp and you decline that $800 fee or whatever it's up to now, magically, the exact opposite might happen to your business. Now, I got to say allegedly here, so I don't get sued by Yelp because they've came out and said they would never do that. They do not do that. Now, firsthand experience on it, I've seen it, right? It's if you pay for advertising with them, you're going to be promoted. You're going to have your good reviews on there. If you don't, especially if you're in a competitive market, you're going to get buried into oblivion. And even better, they have an even more clever thing to do here is if you're not advertising with them, you know, not only are the bad reviews going to be kind of spotlighted and the good reviews somewhat filtered through, if someone actually searches you for Yelp and they click on, all right, I'm going to look at Stephanie's auto repair. There she is. She didn't advertise with Yelp. So when I click on Stephanie's auto repair, it might pop up and say, hey, do you mean Andy's auto repair? Why? Because Andy pays for Yelp. Stephanie does not. I've seen this happen all the time. Now, as a general rule of thumb, I think that Yelp is a terrible business and they should be ashamed of themselves. But you know what? Sometimes pride can get in front of making good business decisions, right? And I've seen a lot of people write off Yelp completely. It's a crock. You know, they steal money. It doesn't have any people in here. Now, the one thing that is constant here is, yeah, I would agree. Yelp is not a good company, but for some people, Yelp is their bread and butter. I have some clients in certain areas where Yelp is worth its weight in gold. Right, That $800 that they spend on it might be the only advertising that they do, and they drive more customers out of there and more than they can even handle. They don't have to do anything else. However, in other areas, you know, people have found out, hey, I'm going to go try and I'm going to do Yelp, and it's done absolutely nothing. Again, it's not super expensive in the grand scheme of things for most normally sized shops, but sometimes it's a huge return on investment. Sometimes it's an absolute waste of money. Now, anytime my clients ask about specific advertisers and stuff like that, I say, first and foremost, I don't do advertising, right? There is professionals out there who make their money and some by doing this because they understand this more than me, right? And if you want to not pay someone to do this, to handle this professionally, you can do it yourself, but really it's a trial and error. Now, companies that specialize in advertising, specifically advertising for shops, obviously have a lot more background knowledge. So they'll be able to say, hey, here are the things that are probably going to work in your area. They're not going to know for sure. No one's ever going to know for sure, but they're going to be able to narrow kind of that focus down a little bit. You try it yourself, you're going to need to do the full-on shotgun approach, right? Hey, we're going to spread it all out. We're going to try a bunch of different kinds of advertising, and we're going to see what works. Versus if you pay a professional to do that, they might say, hey, We think it's either going to be mailers or Google. We're going to try them both, and then we're going to figure out what gives us a better return and narrow our focus even further on this. And this brings up a good point here, right? Of, hey, we're obviously trying to advertise to people, but we got to be very mindful. 
Two things. You see a lot of times where it's like, look how many impressions I got. No one cares about impressions. I care about these people coming and spend money with me. Another thing about it is, hey, how picky are you on your clientele? I have some clients that have shops that are super high volume shops. Everyone is their customer and they're going to make it work no matter what on it. So they're looking at quantity over quality. Hey, bring it in. We'll fix it. We'll make money off of it and have very successful businesses. On the other end of the spectrum, I have clients that are very, very selective and run a very almost boutique level business. They don't want to drive in customers. They want to drive in their customers, their ideal customers that are not only going to come in and spend money with them, but going to be good people to work with. And they're very selective about who they bring in, right? And that's, again, I'm going to, how are you going to pick advertising? Some of these different areas of advertising allow you to narrow that focus to a very specific subset of possibly even income level and other quantifiers like that. Other ones, it's just going to say, hey, we'll see who clicks and see what it goes from here. But again, keep in mind who you're comparing to because you probably don't have that ideal client that the person that you're trying to compare your shop or your advertising strategies to as well. Now, I told you I'd give you the answer here, right? So the answer is 3% is the average of what my clients spend. So my average client is spending 3% of their sales on advertising. So if you want a quick math on that, if you're doing a million dollars a year, that means about $30,000 a year or just under three grand a month is what the average client is spending. Now, again, that is even a bit of a misdirection here. So about half my clients spend virtually nothing on advertising, right? And over the last couple of years, it's probably even been higher than 60 or 65% of that. Materially, they don't really spend much money at all on advertising, maybe 0%, maybe less than 1%, spend a little bit of money, sponsoring a local baseball team or something like that, maybe burying some tickets in there, but they're not doing full-blown mailers. Why? They have more work than they know what to do with. They've been in town for 40 years. Everyone knows who they are. Everyone knows where to find them, and they do. On the other end of the spectrum, about half of my clients spend about 6% of their sales on advertising, right? These are the people that you look at that are either trying to grow their business They're in a competitive market or, hey, they just want to spend a little bit more money on advertising and kind of broaden their customer base here. Now, what ends up working out is in the middle. And I don't really have a whole lot of clients that are spending in the middle, right? Either you need to do advertising or you don't. Now, which bucket are you in? I can't answer that. And this is a lot of times, and I've talked about this in episodes before, where people say, well, hey, am I spending too much or too little on advertising? And again, I can't answer that question. But what I can answer is, does the advertising expense that I see match up with what you're trying to do here, right? And even again, you have to be very careful on how specific you look at it. But kind of the two examples that I would give is this. Hey, am I spending enough money on advertising? And I ask them, hey, do you have cars? You know, is there a production issue? And they say, yeah, we're slow, right? We're really slow. Phones just aren't ringing. You know, I had to send a guy home early yesterday. Now, if I look in their profit and loss statement, they're spending 1% of their sales on advertising, then no, I don't know how much you should be spending or what percentage, because I don't know how many clients you're trying to drive. I don't know what you're going to be using for this. But what I can tell you is probably not spending enough on advertising, right? You're barely spending any money on advertising, but you complain that you don't have cars. Pretty simple solution here. Hey, spend some more money on advertising. Hopefully it drives in more cars. Not to say it's going to work. Sometimes it's very hard to get people in. Sometimes I have clients that have to spend a ton of money just to get one car in. In a super competitive space where you have a very, very kind of targeted clientele. Exact opposite side of things. Hey, hon, am I spending enough money on advertising? Well, you know what? Let me take a look at this. All right, so I see that this client is spending about 7% of their sales on advertising. 
all right, so to me, your financials are saying that you're trying to grow this business and probably trying to grow it pretty decent. Well, hunt, that's the exact opposite. We have more work to know what to do with. I'm turning people away. I got a backlog of three weeks and I'm short a technician. I cannot handle a single bit more. Again, I'm not going to tell you how much you should be spending, but I'll tell you, it doesn't match up with what you're trying to do here, right? You're spending six or 7% of your sales on advertising to drive in people that you have to turn away. Now, I'm not going to say you need to get rid of it or even cut it in half, but I'll probably look at lowering that down because it doesn't make sense. The numbers don't match the story that you're trying to uh, tell here. So again, the average of all my clients are spending about 3% of their sales on advertising. But again, that is what they spent, not to be confused with what you should be spending in your shop. In today's world, managing the labor side of your business is more important than ever. Utilizing their industry-leading software, Labor Profit Management, Repair Shop of Tomorrow can help shops maximize their profits by developing a specific plan for each client. Do you know what your effective labor rate is? Do you know your technician's efficiency and productivity? Do you know how much profit dollars each technician is adding to the bottom line? If the answer is no, then this Napa Auto Care endorsed program from Repair Shop of Tomorrow is the program for you. Developed for shop owners by shop owners, this program will help you become more profitable on day one. Utilizing their unique labor management systems will allow you to work smarter, not harder. For more information about their programs, please visit them at repairshopoftomorrow.com. When you started in this business, did you really think that cars would be driving themselves and that people would be buying cars online without test driving them? I don't think any of us did. Yet that's exactly what is going on. On the repair side, the auto industry is changing fast. Customers expect quick answers and proof that they need the repairs that you recommend. They want to pay you while buying a coffee, then rate you on Yelp after picking up their keys. So why stay in the past? A shop owner named Carolyn asked herself the same question, so she created an online shop management system that automates the stuff you do over and over again. She and her team added texting in every step in the process from booking your appointment to posting that stellar review. They learn from their customers just like you learn from yours. And it's the system that's leading the industry into a bright future. Find out more about this and other things at GetShopware.com. So let's talk profit here, right? Everyone wants to talk profit. Profit is what everyone shoots for. And let's be realistic. If there wasn't profit, most people wouldn't be doing this. And, you know, I think that profit is probably one of the most universal things that is probably agreed upon and specifically a target here. Everyone is generally shooting for a 20% net. In the industry, 20% is what some people strive for, what some people already achieve, and some people are blowing it out of the water. And even on the surface, some of you listening, that isn't a realistic target for you. On the other hand, there's some of you listening that would be disappointed to only see a 20% net. And doing well above that, and you're already doing maybe even double that, right? I have clients that consistently show, I'm not sure if I have anyone that shows over a 40% profit or net profit margin, but I've definitely seen some people pretty darn close to it. But let's talk about where that 20% comes from. How do people kind of shoot for that 20% or what is the basic structure of that? So the basic structure of a general repair shop is 50, 30, 20, right? Those are the three numbers I want you to remember because... You know, not only talking about this episode, but when I look at financial analysis, that's always the model I'm trying to fit it into. Now, what does that mean? 
So 50, 30, 20. So where that comes from is your gross profit should be 50%, meaning after you pay your parts and labor and technicians, you should have 50% left over. And then your fixed expenses or your overhead should be 30% less of your sales, right? So 30% or less of your sales should go to insurance, rent, advertising, et cetera, et cetera. So if 50% of your sales are left over after your direct expenses, and then 30% of your sales goes away to your overhead, what that leaves you with is 20% of sales in the form of profit. Now, again, gross generalization here, and there's a couple different ways to slice this pie, right? So if you wanted to get a 20% net and your fixed expenses were 40% of your sales, you could still do it, but your gross profit better be 60% of your sales. Now, if you were to go the opposite direction and your overhead is really cheap, right? So maybe your overhead is only 20% of your sales, then your gross profit could only be 40% and you would still make a 20% net. Anytime that you're losing someplace, you better be making it up somewhere else. Now, the nice thing about the percentages is it's comparable to a certain degree, no matter what the sales are, but it also can be a very misleading target. And this idea came up to me the other day when I was talking to one of my clients and they do a lot of towing. Right. And they said, Hunt, why are we not at a 20% net? You know, everyone talks about everyone in my 20 group is running a 20% net, but we just can't seem to achieve that. And I had to tell them, I said, you're probably never going to, because comparing a general repair shop to what you guys are doing is completely misleading. Yes, you guys still do parts and labor, but you guys also have a monstrous towing business. Towing is not going to be as high of margins as what you're having in a repair shop. And so that's going to pull down your overall gross profit. If you pull down your overall gross profit, it's going to be impossible to ever hit that 20% net. Now, does that mean that you can't be profitable? No, not at all, but probably not at a percentage level, right? And so tire stores are something that I always compare a lot, right? And so if you have a tire shop and you're trying to do a 20% net, I've seen it happen. It's not very common, right? And I'll give you a quick, quick example why. So let's say you're listening right now and you're running a pretty ideal repair shop. Your target for parts is probably 50%. And we'll talk about this in a little bit of how that can even be a little bit you know, high or low on it. But maybe your gross profit target on parts is 50%. Maybe you're even a little bit lower and you're at 40%. Average tire shop, especially on their tire sides, is probably running an average 20% gross profit. And if you're truly a tire shop, right? You're not doing that much repair work on it then the majority of your part sales are going to be tires. And if you do the math there, you're making an average half gross profit of what an average repair shop is doing. And so what ultimately ends up working out is you're going to see a lower gross profit. Fixed expenses are generally pretty comparable to a regular repair shop. And what you're left with is a lower net profit. When I look at a shop, you know, in a tire shop, I would generally say if you're doing 10%, 15%, you're probably doing pretty darn well for a tire shop. It's kind of misleading again. Now, what a tire shop loses in margin, they generally make up in volume, right? And I say this a lot, is if you put a repair shop and a tire shop side by side, if you want to make the same amount of profit dollar-wise, not percentage, that tire shop probably has to be doing about double in sales of what that repair shop is doing because your margins are going to be lower. So yes, you can still get that same dollar amount, but you're going to have to work twice as hard for it or sell twice as much. Now, realistically, if you look at you know the average repair order of a tire business, it's generally a lot higher than a repair business because everyone is getting four tires, maybe an alignment, maybe some other stuff on it. And generally, these tickets are pretty big. 
And so if you have a ticket that has $200 in gross profit, that might be you know 40% of a $500 repair order. But if you have that same $200 in gross profit, that might only be 20% of $1,000. At the end of the day, you still made that same 200, but it took more sales to do this. Now, tires are not the only ones that we see this, right? If you have a quick lube business, again, quick lube business is almost never going to hit a 20% net of a true quick lube. But what they lose in profitability and from a percentage basis, again, they make up in sales. Generally, higher volume running down through there, turn and burn, you know, quantity over quality. Also, fleet work, right? Fleet work, whether you're a true fleet shop, right? I have some shops that only do fleet work. They don't do retail work. They only do fleet work. Fleet companies don't like to pay retail rates, and they very rarely do, right? On the labor and part side, they're going to beat you up on that. But how did that fleet work sell their business to you, right? If you had a customer come in and say, hey, Mr. or Mrs. You know, shop owner, I want to bring my car here, but I want a special rate, not only on the labor, but I want to bring my own parts or maybe pay you half of your parts margin. If that's an individual person, you're going to say, yeah, we're not the shop for you. But why do you say yes to a company that has 35 trucks? The reason is, is you say, yes, I'm going to be making less money from a percentage basis on these trucks, but I'm going to get so much volume here that it's going to work out in the long run. And inevitably it does. Now, the last example on here I want to put out there is collision shops, right? We don't really talk about the collision world that much on this podcast, but collision shops are no different than, you know, tire shops, you know, quick lube and fleet work. As in, again, it's in the same automotive industry, but a completely different planet, right? We got insurance companies involved in there. Um, You know, the average labor rate for a collision shop is usually half to a third of what a repair business is, but everything else then kind of goes out the window. For a collision shop, you're probably going to have about three times the sales to make the same amount of profit than you would for a repair shop, right? I'm not making up these numbers. This is literally what I've seen, and I've actually compared real-life examples. Again, lower gross profit on this stuff, higher volume, because they need to be. Why are the margins lower? Because we got a big person in there, the insurance injury, beating them up on prices, you know? But now the where we make this up is sales, Right. And so if you have a technician in, you know, repair shop and they're cranking out 40, 50 hours a week, they might be your highest paid technician and your most productive technician. In a collision shop, you're probably going to get fired if you're averaging that low a week. It is not uncommon for guys to be turning 100, 150, even 200 hours a week in flagged hours. Just the way that they build stuff, it's a completely different animal. Only reason I bring the collision is, I guess, A, to kind of muddy the waters and and make this more confusing, but just to illustrate of, hey, this is all the same industry. We're still selling parts and labor, just different kinds of parts and labor, but you got to be very careful on who you're comparing to. Last one on here, I want to touch about this, and and I wanted to put this in the episode before where I did, um, how much is your time worth? But if you're looking for that 20% net, You also have to be mindful of your own time and what your perspective is and what your main goal is at that stage in your life. So let's say you're young. You probably value money more than time. And if that's the case, then you're going to be shooting for a 25% net, maybe a 30% net. How are you going to do that? Maybe you're going to be understaffed. Maybe you're going to be acting as someone in the day-to-day operations to be able to save that money on salary, which ultimately gives you a much higher profit you know, from a dollar and percentage basis. But you're working for that, right? You're putting your time in. You're getting return on investment on your time, but you're still dedicating the time in a business. 
Now, the other flip side is this, right? I have a lot of people that average 10, 15% profit margin and they say, Hunt, I know I could make it better, but if I wanted to make that profit higher, that's going to mean more of my time. What do I mean by that? So let's say that your profit is at 25%. You don't have a service advisor. You don't have a manager. You are everything, right? Owner, operator, manager, service advisor. You do it all, but you're very profitable. Now you want to step away and spend some more time out of the shop. How are you going to do that? You got to hire someone to replace yourself. And a lot of times this is where people make that, you know, big hurdle and it's very difficult for them. Because in order, you know, in some of these situations, there might be actually somewhere where you actually fall backwards here. Hey, I hired this person to replace my time, but ultimately this is going to affect profitability. Or maybe even situations where you're properly staffed, but you're kind of on the razor's edge of not having enough people. The more people you have, the more overstaffed you have, you are probably the easier business that you have to run. You have redundancy, you have backup plans, but profit is going to suffer. On the opposite side of things, the most profitable way to run a business is understaffed. It's also the most stressful way to run a business as well, too. So looking at the bottom line, you got to make sure that not only that you're comparing to the right kind of business, also that that business has the same outlook that you do. Are you trying to make more money or are you trying to have a reliable business that runs without your involvement and not as focused on profit as you are on your own time and your own personal investment? So I want to quickly kind of go down through a couple of little finer details here and often things that I come up and things that I discuss with my clients all the time. And I was just having this conversation with my client this morning talking about parts gross profit. So 50% is the general target for parts gross profit. Industry-wide, people throw it out there, 50% gross profit for targets. Now, I like that number personally because it's an easy number to remember. How do you make 50% gross profit? Whatever you bought that part for, double that, and that's what you should be selling it for. 100% markup is the same as 50% gross profit. Now, some say 60%, right? Some I've heard coaching companies, I've heard other people say, you know what? Your target should be 60%. You're making 54% parts gross profit. You got to keep on cranking that up. 60% is where you should be. Now, let me be honest with you. If you can hit 60% gross profit consistently on parts, more power to you, right? I'm not going to tell you to stop doing it. Obviously, you figured it out. Who am I to tell you otherwise? Now, on the same flip side, it is not a very common number whatsoever. So we deal with about 600 client groups, with some of those are multi-location in there. So we see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of financial statements every month, every year. I have, man, maybe five or less clients that are averaging consistently over 60% gross profit, like truly recognizing over 60% parts gross profit. It is just very, very rare. And all of those clients that are averaging 60% or better parts gross profit are in unique situations. If you're going to get 60% parts gross profit, you're saying to your clients loud and proud, I am expensive, I don't care, and obviously neither do you guys, right? And so a lot of those times when I see these clients, they're in areas where maybe they don't even really have much competition or they have other competition in town but not to the level of service that they are. Hey, there's five other garages in town, but no one can do it as good as this one. It's not even in the same ballpark on it. Now, if you're in a super competitive area, you're probably never going to be able to sniff 60% gross profit on parts. Parts is always the hardest one because I get it. You can explain warranty. You can explain the quality of parts that you're using on this, but that can only go so far, right? 60% gross profit on parts is a very, very strong number. Again, 
If you can get it, if you can achieve it, if you can spin that, cool. But if you're sitting there, and I've seen this happen to a lot of my clients, kind of feeling bad for themselves, feeling like they're leaving money on the table, averaging 54% gross profit on parts. Right? And I always say this, there's always improvement, right? Any shop, give me a shop and I can show you one area they can improve, even if it's one or two percentage points. But usually the worst thing about it is I see a shop and they're doing already so well on parts. Yeah, there might be another couple points there, but there's probably something else in your business that you could focus your attention to that is going to make a more sizable difference in your overall bottom line or even the quality of your life. Now, the tricky part here is that 50% gross profit uh, for parts, you know, while it's less than, you know, the hypothetical 60% I hear out there is still not a realistic target for a lot of shops out there. So if you're a Euro shop, you know, BMW only, a German shop, um, but buy a lot of dealer parts or, you know, have to buy, you know, there's not a whole lot of choice for aftermarket. Or maybe you don't use aftermarket, you only use OEM parts. You're never going to hit 60%. You're probably never even going to hit 50%. Most of my Euro shops are running between a 40 to 45% gross profit on parts. It's just not something that they can leverage that much. For two reasons, right? First of all, if their buying power is not very good. Hey, the markup that we get or the markdown that we get isn't that drastic, right? So it doesn't put our cost that drastically you know, lower than what the retail prices are consumer. So we got to be careful on how much we mark this up, right? Whereas if you're buying a water pump for a Honda Accord, there's a number of different examples out there. There's a number of different options on this with some pretty competitive pricing. Also, the cost is going to be about a tenth less. So if you were to make 50% gross profit on a $30 part, you're only selling it for 60. Now, if you're making 50% gross profit on a $300 part, you're selling it for 600, right? And so cost does make a difference. Diesel shops are the same way. A lot of this stuff is dealer only. A lot of this stuff is super high dollar. I'm going out, I'm replacing this turbocharger on this Duramax. All right, turbocharger alone is $2,000. You think you're going to be able to sell it to your customer for $4,000? Hey, if you can... Give me a call. I might want to hire you for sales. It's going to be a really hard conversation though. But again, just like we were talking about with the percentages above, yeah, it's all relative based on what you're doing. Hey, for that turbocharger, instead of making $200 or $2,000 of gross profit on it, maybe only making $700. From a percentage standpoint, it might look a lot lower, but that turbocharger takes the same amount of time to put on there as a turbocharger that you sold at 100% markup, but was only $100. So again, there's a lot of variability in this depending on what you're selling and what your target is and what your positioning is in the market. Now, overall, what I always tell people is, right, we have targets, right? We have this general rule of thumb, but there's a number of different ways to slice the pie. Now, if the target for the industry is at 50% and you're losing here and you're only at 35 or 40%, does that mean you're never going to be able to hit a 20% net? No, not at all. I got people doing it, but you better gain somewhere else. If you're doing poorly on parts, you better be doing well on labor, right? And so if I have a target for a general repair shop, 50% gross profit on parts, 60% gross profit on labor, that's kind of the general model. If you have a shop that's doing 40% parts gross profit, then you probably need to be doing about 70% labor gross profit. And for Euro shops and specialty shops, we see that a lot. Hey, you know what? We can't do as well on the part side of this. But on the labor side, we can really blow it out of the water because we're unique. We have a set of skills that they can't shop around. They can't go to other places on this because we have the tooling, the training, everything that allows us to fix these more complex issues or these more unique issues that other people just are not familiar with.
So lastly, I want to kind of talk about expenses here, right? So we know the model is 50% gross profit, fixed expenses 30% or lower, which leaves us with a 20% net. Now, the 30% of sales is, again, a number that is a general target. And sometimes it's right in line, sometimes it's not. But there's so many things that go into this that maybe are even skewing the figures that you're looking at. How high is your officer salary? If you're taking $150,000 a year in your officer salary, your shop's only doing a million dollars, that's 15% of your sales is going to your officer salary. So if you look at your fixed expenses, you're going to say, whoa, my fixed expenses are too high. I'm never going to be able to hit a 20% net. What you're ignoring is part of your net is already built into your salary because you're taking a ton of money out of the business. Another thing is, is how high is your rent? Where are you? Because if you're in Southern California, I mean, I guess Northern California as well. I mean, let's just put the whole state of California in there as far as high rent percentage. Pacific Northwest, notoriously very expensive cost of living for the rent. Um, and then in my area, you know, the Metro Washington, D.C. metro area. Again, it's just a really expensive place to do business. You know, the average that we see is between probably 6 and 9% of sales on rent. Not uncommon to see 12, 13, 14, 15%. Some places, it's just really expensive to do business. Now, what if you're paying rent to yourself? Maybe you're inflating your rent because you want to pay down the mortgage on your building quicker. Again, if it's above market value, then you're not looking at a true apples to apples comparison. Yeah, your fixed expenses look higher, but again, your profit is in those fixed expenses because instead of using the profit to pay down that debt, you're just putting your rent up. Not a bad thing whatsoever. But just be careful with how much you're judging this information and how impartial you think it is. Now, on the flip side of that, you know, especially on the rent side, I've seen this go the opposite direction. Oh, look, my expenses are perfect, right? 30% of my sales dead on. You're paying yourself 500 bucks a month in rent. Market value is more like $8,000 a month. So yes, you might look like you're making a lot of money on there, but throw in a fair market value rent on this and this business might not even be profitable anymore. Another thing is, and this is probably the most common one, is, Hunt, I'm not making a 20% net. Gross profit looks dead on, but my fixed expenses are too high. You know, and I just don't know what's going on here. I don't get why I'm not profitable. When I start bearing or I start looking down into these uh, fixed expenses, I'm like, office supply is a little bit high. Travel's kind of high. Meals are kind of high. Meetings are kind of high here. And if we start digging into this, I'm like, wait. This is not even business expenses, right? You're leveraging the tax advantages of being self-employed here and running expenses down through your business, right? Which you're leveraging the tax benefit of that, which is awesome. Hey, why are we going to pay tax on something if we can get a benefit and argue, you know, the business purpose of this stuff? But sometimes you're conflicting, you know, expenses with, again, profits or your own personal life, right? You got a race car, you run all your travel down through the business. Every meal is through there. Your personal utilities are getting paid there. Your kids' college is getting paid out of there. I mean, my clients would never do this, right? But I've heard of people doing this stuff and running expenses down through there that they shouldn't, right? And again, hey, more power to you. You do what you need to do on this. No one likes paying tax at the government. But again, it might give you kind of misleading information that, oh, I'm not making enough money. Maybe you are. Maybe the shop is doing fine, but you're just kind of burdening it with a lot of your personal expenses. Which again, if we're going to get the benefit of it, then great. But make sure you take that into consideration when you're truly evaluating how well your business is doing. Again, just like we were talking about on the you know parts example of I have people that have expenses 40% of their sales and they're still making money. 
But if you're losing here, meaning you're spending too much money here, you better be gaining it somewhere else, right? So you still want to make a 20% net when your expenses are 40% of your sales. All right, well, you better be pricing pretty darn well because you're going to need to make about 60% gross profit. Now, on the flip side of that of, hey, maybe you're in a place that's really cheap to live and your fixed expenses are only 20% of your sales, then you only need a 40% gross profit to still make a 20% net. Now, the reason I always tell people this and, you know, and I'm excited to see this benchmark report finally come out is the majority of my most profitable shops are in places that you've never heard of. And this is exactly why is because they're probably in places where the cost of living is very cheap. So their overhead is low, right? Instead of having 30% of their sales, they're having 20% or sometimes even lower of their sales go to overhead. So already right there, they're 10% above the average. Also in these places, like we were talking about before with parts gross profit, they're the only game in town. They're expensive, they're loud and proud about it, but they're really good at what they do. So instead of averaging a 50% gross profit, they're averaging a 60% overall gross profit because of how they can price things. So now you got a business that has 60% gross profit and only 20% of the sales going to fixed expenses, that's leaving them with a 40% net profit margin. So 40% might seem astronomical, but if you really look at that, they're not that drastically different. Hey, their expenses are 10% lower than the average and their gross profit is 10% higher than the average on it. But overall, what that leaves you is double the average profitability. And I've seen this time and time again. And it's one of these shops that you would never expect. It's not the fancy ones. It's not the ones that have all the bells and whistles on it. It's just these guys out there that are just quietly printing money. And it's kind of funny because every once in a while, you know, I don't like to judge a book by its cover in in a judgmental way whatsoever, but I always kind of have an impression of what I think those numbers look like. I've been doing this long enough that I usually have a general idea. Hey, this person works on this type of vehicle in this place. And sometimes I'll get some insider information. What's your labor rate? How many texts you got? Stuff like that. But usually just kind of judging what they're doing, I kind of have an idea. A lot of times I'm pretty good at this, right? I've been doing this a lot. But every once in a while, people surprise me. Every once in a while, this is my favorite thing when I look at a business and I just say, you know what? I am not even sure what to even tell you, right? Who am I to tell you anything on this? Because you've obviously figured this out already. Keep doing what you're doing. You've built a business that is printing you money. Your only job is to feed it cars and it's going to spit you out profit. It's awesome to see. And it's also really encouraging to talk to other people, right? Because if these people talk to a guy that's just getting by, when they get down to the really nitty gritty of this and truly comparing some of these things, a lot of this stuff's not that far off. But like we've been talking about all day, some of the things is going to be a direct comparison. Some of the things is just not going to work if you try to replicate it somewhere else that is not the exact same shop. So at the end of the day, I hope that you at least took out of this to be careful with who you compare yourself to and how. Are you comparing apples to apples or do you just think that you are? And I see these numbers all the time and I see the numbers of people preaching this, something completely different than what they're actually achieving at their own shop. So be careful with how rigid the advice that you receive is. And it's okay to say my shop is different because it probably is. Now, I'm not going to give you a flyer to shrug off anything contrary to your beliefs, But too many times I see people beating their heads against a wall, trying to live up to unrealistic expectations for their specific shop. So as always, please share with friends. And if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please shoot me an email at podcast at parmelis.com. I just want to say a special thank you. Uh, Over the last week or two, I've had a couple people reach out and just to say, hey, 
I enjoy the episodes. This is cool. You know, these are topics that I like to hear and just appreciate what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for listening. Um, It always makes my day when I see that stuff. Not that I'm fishing for compliments here, but just so you guys know, I always try to respond to them, but it means a lot, right? I'm recording this stuff in my basement. I'm talking to a wall. So it's still new to me. Um, It's just over the one year mark of doing this. And it still kind of blows me away that people will listen to an accountant talk about this stuff and actually enjoy this and actually take stuff out of it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Uh, You can find all shows on aftermarketradionetwork.com and on your favorite podcast listening app. So thanks again for joining me on Business by the Numbers. Stay safe out there. And I will talk to you all next week. You've been listening to Business by the Numbers with Hunt Demarest on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Hunt on your favorite podcast listening app. Let him know what you'd like him to cover. His email is in the show notes. Hunt is all for advancing the aftermarket.